Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello. I can Lock hear you. Radio. Hear me. Radio. BAMS Radio is brought to you every week, 7 to 9 p.m. Central Time. And tonight we're going to be talking about 8A, Bama baseball, Bama softball, Bama basketball recruiting, and a host of other topics, uh, you know, Bama football recruiting, of course. I'm Kerry Clark, your co host from BamaMag.com, joined as always by Thomas Watts back in the studio. He's with Touchdown Alabama Magazine. And we'll be joined shortly by Drew DeArmond of ESPN 97.7. Tonight we're going to hear from uh, William Redfish Barger, our Bama football correspondent, if you will. We're also going to hear from John Garcia, one of our Bama recruiting correspondents, good friend of the show, uh, via a recorded interview. And we're also going to hear from uh, Chris Lowe, who knows pretty much Chris to know about SEC football and recently had a sit-down conversation with Nick Saban. Drew got to talk to him on ESPN 97.7 The Zone, so we'll hear a portion of that recording as well. So we got a full night for you tonight here on BAMS Radio, but we'll start talking about uh, the 8 day game. And, uh, of course, it was 76,000-plus there uh, officially, uh, the estimate, which was uh, more than the 45,000 Auburn claim they had the week before. But I'm sure they'll say we inflated our figures. Uh, well, I think 76 was pretty close to accurate. It was it was definitely over 70. The game itself was not terribly thrilling, unless you like defense. Uh, but the final score was seven to three in favor of the white team. Uh, it was very fair that they won the game because all four of Adam Griffith's mixed field goals, missed field goals, were for the white team. So. Uh, they deserve the stake, and they got the stake, 7-3. to three. The red team made it interesting at the end. Cooper Bateman drove him down the field, and then he threw an interception in the end zone. A great break on the ball, uh, and Ronnie Harrison clinched the win, which means the stake dinner for the white team. But uh, we're going to go ahead now and bring our first caller on to the Asian Rim hotline. And, by the way, remember to go to AsianRim.com and check out the menu. 
And remember, anytime you're in the Birmingham area, to go to the Colonnade Shopping Center off of Highway 280 and check out the Asian Rim Restaurant, where Thai food, sushi, steak, barbecue, burgers, sliders, rice, noodles, salad, and alcohol. They got it all. Asian Rim. Check them out at AsianRim.com. Let's go ahead and bring on our first caller of the evening to uh, the Asian Rim Hotline. And that is the pride of Greenville, Alabama, former Alabama manager under Coach Paul Bryant, lifelong fan, legendary trivia buff, Colin Big C. McGuire. What's up, buddy? Not much. How y'all doing? Who's there with you tonight, Kerry? As far as I know, Drew Thomas and me. Drew will be with us for a second. He's going to be with us second hour. He's handling a fundraiser up in Huntsville. Oh, okay. I got you. Hey, Thomas, how you doing? Pretty good, Big C. Glad to hear yeah. from you this evening. Thank you. Glad to be on here. Uh, yeah, I was there Saturday, big man. Um, I don't think they want to show anything. I don't know if you can really get much out of it. And if you remember Saban said after the ball game that the offensive line that started the other day might not be the one that will be starting uh, uh, on September the 3rd out in Dallas. So, uh, I know uh, Shane Taylor is sort of in the doghouse with Saban. I understand how with him working out, and I let how he gained over, got uh, 20 pounds overweight. What do, you, what do you know on that? I mean, that sort of seems like to me he ought to be in better shape than that. So you want me to explain how somebody gained weight? I guess I, I'm pretty much an expert on that. So what happened is, you know, uh, they got all these pizza places that will bring you food to your room. And, oh, yeah. um, they got a place called Dreamland, and uh, they got a, a bunch of ways you can gain weight. Uh, and when you're already a big guy, I can just tell you, it's hard to keep it off. Now, you know, Scott Cochran and all them, they've been monitoring him, and, you know, they got a full-time nutritionist, uh, Miss Amy Bragg. But they're having uh, what Saban basically said in the press conference was, he will stay second team as long as Shank Taylor stays overweight. Now, basically, he threw down the gauntlet and challenged the young man to get his rear end out there on that track and run some of that off and let Cochran help him, let Amy Bragg help him with nutrition. And I think, Big C, by the time that Alabama plays USC in Fort Worth, Texas, that Alphonse Big Shank Taylor will be the right guard. I think he was demoted all spring to get his attention. I, I can assure you that nobody who started all 15 games as a junior on a national championship team wants to work, you know, one or two series a game at the most with the twos their senior year. So I think he'll get out there and lose the weight. Uh, and our guest in the second hour, I think, will, will back me up on that too, William Redfish Barger. But, uh, yeah, I, he – the right guard Saturday with the first team was Brandon Kennedy, and Brandon's a good player, but he didn't start 15 games last year for the national champions. So what Saban was saying about the fact that the people that were first-team offensive line probably wouldn't be first game, we, I mean, let's think about it. The left, the left tackle wasn't even dressed out. Well, I take that back. He dressed out, but the left tackle didn't play, Cam Robinson, so we know he'll be in there. Shank is probably at least 80, 85% going to beat out Kennedy. So he'll be in there. Pierce Baker will be the center, Dixie. And Lester Cotton will be the left guard. 
And right tackle is kind of up in the air. It could be Jonah Williams that played it Saturday, or it could be uh, somebody else like a Corey Kirvin. Uh, or maybe even the light would come on for Charles Baldwin. So you can't really guarantee who anybody is going to be except the left side and, that, and the center. The left tackle will be Robinson. The left guard will be Lester Cotton. And the center will be Ross Piercebaker. Those other two jobs are, are up for grabs, but I still say it's a good chance that, that Taylor starts at, at right guard. And, and a lot of people think that the right tackle will be who it was Saturday True freshman Jonah Williams. I've been hearing great things about him. Well, I had a friend that played up there, and he watched the offensive line, and he was pretty – even though despite the fact they didn't score that many points, he likes what he sees in them that played the other day. And he said they're good players, plus they were going up against the first-team defense, which, as you know, they stopped um, Bo Scarborough pretty much in his tracks. Uh, uh, So – and the South like Carolina defensive line is going to be pretty good. And, you know, you didn't have Jonathan Allen play the other day. And, I mean, I'm trying to think uh, who else. And then Hand played some, but he didn't really play that much, though, did he? Oh, he played a good bit. Uh, but, you know, like you said, Allen didn't play. Hand did, Tomlinson did, and Payne did. Um, but Allen's probably going to start ahead of either Tomlinson or, or Hand. Uh, yeah, and as far as the people that played on the backup line, I think the backup nose guard for this fall was having to play defensive end Saturday because of depth problems, and that's Josh yeah. Flager. Yeah. Well, and then they got no telling what they got coming in on this freshman. I mean, sort of heard about Deron Payne and Darren. He was almost like a starter. Uh, Last year, not even the start, but I mean, he played it so much. Now he starts. I mean, he started a couple games. I'm sorry, what now? He started a couple games, three or four. Yeah. So I mean, it was depending on who they were playing that week. Yeah. So I mean, these guys they got coming in on the defensive line this summer. They so telling they might be able to contribute right immediately, which seems like these freshmen we signed like we got on basically on defense. Like they're able to do that pretty quick. So, but uh, are you still there? I don't know what's going on. Oh yeah, there. I'm uh, here. I'm here. But uh, yeah. But, but you know, uh, quarterback. The main thing what they got to do is just like what I think it was two of they was in, uh, interviewing Thompson in the Montgomery Advertiser. If he just does the right checks and grades. I mean, really, you don't have to have a superstar quarterback up there to just do what Saban wants them to do. The defense plays right. They don't make mistakes and turnovers and stuff. I mean, the formula we've been working with for going into the 10th season since he's been there, and from second year on, he's won double-digit winning seasons. Of course, I'm ended up being national championship season, so... And having number one recruiting classes back to back to back to back, I mean, it's just main things. What they got to do is just go out there and do right, play right, and you know, be focused like they have been. That and they need to stay injury free, uh, especially on the uh, line of scrimmage. They don't need any major injuries on the offensive line. They don't need any major injuries on the defensive line. Uh, you know the. The 26, 27-year-old junior college guy that's coming in, Jamar King, 
uh, this summer. He's probably going to step on campus and be the backup end. Uh, and, you know, Frazier's the backup nose guard, and the other backup end is whoever doesn't start between Tomlinson and Hand. We know Allen's going to be at the end, and Payne's going to be at nose guard. They don't need any of them guys to get hurt, Big C, because you have to have depth in this league. You can't just play three guys the whole game. So no. you have to have and, – and that's that's also true on the offensive line because those five guys, once they pick out who they are, have to mesh together and develop chemistry and – and all that, so you don't really need to have to do any plugging and playing there if you don't if you don't have if you don't you don't want to do it unless you have to. So if if those two units can stay pretty injury free, uh, I think that they'll be okay this fall. I mean, I'm not going to p- predict an undefeated season. I'm not one of these people that thinks Alabama's going to win every single game just because they put on the crimson and white. I used to think that, yeah. but I, I I always feel like they're going to lose about one game a year. And, but if you do it early enough, it doesn't hurt you, and you still win your division. You'll probably be okay. I don't even want to venture to guess who it might be. But my feeling is this, Big C. My feeling is they could lose in Knoxville and still win the division and turn around and beat Tennessee in Atlanta. That's kind yeah. of an off-the-cuff guess. And because they've proven other than twenty, other than one year, uh, which was 09, they've proven that, that they're normally going to lose a game. So, oh, yeah. And I, I, I just can't wrap my head around the possibility of another loss to Hugh Freeze. So, yep. if not Hugh Freeze, then we'll then maybe it'll be the guy that they now call Butch Please. <laughs> Butch. But uh, they call him Butch, Butch Please. So if not Hugh Freeze, oh, yeah. then Butch Please. So uh, I love that. No, he got one of these. Where did he Where did he get that nickname put on him? I don't know if it was Tyler Insider or one of the other websites, or but I'll tell you what, it's funny. Um, yeah. The other nickname for him, Big C, is because of uh, kind of how he looks. A lot of people call him Sergeant Carter. Oh, yeah, he does look like like Sergeant Carter on on um, Zona Pound. You know, and you're going to laugh at this, but this is no lie. The guy that played Sergeant Carter was a, a native of Clarksville, Tennessee. I don't know if you knew that or not, but he wore, he was born there. I did not know that. He's from the state of Tennessee. You know, if you really think about it hard, there must be a lot of Gomer Pyle fans up there in Knoxville because if you think about it real hard, Big C, uh, old Sergeant Carter's predecessor, Derek Dewey, he looked a little bit like Gomer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying. He's got a pretty good gig now. He's an assistant coach for the Dallas Cowboys, I see now. Yeah, it's so a I good guess, gig, but it's still a sorry team, though. Well, as long as you got Jerry Jones running it, they ain't going to be too good. That's right. I, I agree. I agree with that. That's a whole other show. But uh, have you got any other uh, questions you want to ask or observations you want to make about A-Day? Well, not really, I don't think. But, it's, but I appreciate you letting me on. When, when, can we, when do you want me to get in touch with you tomorrow, big man? Uh, about 7.30. All right. I'll be calling you then, but uh, appreciate it. And tell Drew I said hello, and uh, that's all i got to bring to the table tonight. But we'll think of something next week. Well, tell them about how they can listen tomorrow morning on Jock Jive. All right. All you got to do is go to www.jockjive.com and uh, go to the Talking Sports Big C tab, and yours truly will be on between 7 and 8 o'clock Central Time. Worldwide, and like today, 
talk about the 1934 National Championship team, which they had a an end by the name of Paul Bear Bryant on that team, and they had a really good team. Oh, yes. Talk about them. But anyway, all right, well, I'll be talking to you tomorrow around 730 then, big man. All right, have a good one, Big C. That's uh, Colin Big C McGuire uh, calling in on the Asian Rim Hotline. And, uh, you know, we're going to go ahead now, as promised, and play you the interview that Drew DeArmond did earlier this month with Chris Lowe. And I think you'll be interested to hear some of the things that he found out about Alabama and about Nick Saban. So without further ado, we're going to have the uh, sit down with Judy Armand and Chris Lowe. That originally Chris, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Good to be with you guys. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Chris. We really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I was reading your article and uh, the coverage of uh, Nick Saban this week, and it is pretty remarkable. I know you uh, you covered the you were the, the the 90s were dominated really by the Tennessee and Florida in the Eastern Division, and the East was considered stronger than the West most of those years. Though Alabama did win the national championship in 1992, and uh, it struck me as I read the article and read Coach Saban's comments, and it's just I I, I wanted to get your take on it. I guess what's been surprising to me and I do remember where I was when he was announced as coach in 2007, and I'm like you. I thought if Alabama got five or six years out of him, it would be uh, considered a huge victory because he'd never stayed anywhere longer than five years. But he's been able to stay, uh, and, and uh, now he'll have a decade in at Alabama this coming season. And I guess what's been remarkable is in this high-pressure time of, the, of so much uh, media coverage, and especially from the social media uh, standpoint, He's been able to handle expectations at a place like Alabama and thrive. Well, yeah, because I mean, I think the big reason is Nick's expectations are as high or higher than anybody, and I, I don't think he really gets caught up on on what people on the periphery think. You know, the media, fans, boosters. Um, he's got a standard and has always sort of held himself to that standard. His players, his program, and um, I think that's. And let's face it, Alabama is a place that is going to always give you the resources to succeed. I think Nick came in there and told him everything he wanted, and he's pretty much been able to control anything that touches football. And he's had that type of control. Few coaches don't get that. And I think it's probably gotten even more so that way as he's continued to win. And uh, he set that off, that, that operation up the way he wants to set it up. It's, it's much like an NFL front office, when you look at all the different analysts and all the different people who recruit, work in personnel and recruiting. And, and he's, you know, Nick's background, or he's got an NFL background as far as evaluating players, how he goes about, you know, about evaluating players. And they typically have been spot on. I mean, when they get players that are, are supposed to be good, guys that are ranked pretty high, they typically leave. Um, as really good football players, so um, no, I, I think he's handling it pretty well. You know, he'll be 65 in, in uh, this October, and, and even he admits, "Hey, I'm not going to be on the coach forever." But I don't think there's any question that he's sort of found a home in Alabama. He's comfortable, uh, Drew, and I think more importantly, his family is. Everybody in his family is there in that radius, be it Tuscaloosa or Birmingham, um, and that's important to him. And, Chris, during his tenure at Alabama, I think I've only really felt one time from people that I've spoken with that 
the, there was a, I guess you could say, a, a chance that he would have left. And, and you, you brought it up in the article about the Texas situation and speaking to those close to him. Uh, how close in your mind do you think that came to happening? I don't think it was very close. I mean, I think it was something that, you know, the Texas people were talking to or had reached out. And I think the thing that's funny to be clarified is, you know, Saban or his people, Jimmy Sexton and his people, they, I don't think they ever reached out to anybody. Mm-hmm. Texas reached out to them, which that's happened over and over again, you know, since Nick's been there. Uh, and it was it was certainly something I think was on his plate. But I, in talking to him about it over the years, I don't think he ever was really – serious about it because at that point in his career he would have been what was that two or three he would have been on 62 mm-hmm. and he just he didn't want to go anywhere else at that point to start over now had he been mid-50s you know he might have done it and I think probably he would have looked at it certainly much more seriously than he did and might have bolted you know because I think at, at Nick at his core as a builder he, he likes to get in and build programs and, and, and build them, you know, in his vision of where he wants to, sustaining and, ma- and maintaining is a, is a heck of a lot harder than building them. He'll be the first to say that. So I think age and his career have a lot to do with it. And um, and those who know him even better than I do would tell you the same thing. But I don't think anything else really has tempted him. He doesn't want to go back to the NFL. I mean, that's, he's been there and done that. I don't think his wife, Carrie, would was happy when they were in Miami anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, he's much better suited uh, in his mind, I think in a lot of people's mind, to coaching in, a, coaching in college ball, recruiting, and coaching kids at that age and development. And speaking of developing, uh, I, I was just thinking about this as well. He, the one the one constant he's had in Tuscaloosa was, uh, you know, eight years as defensive coordinator and nine overall on the staff for Kirby Smart, uh, who had a great run, who's now at Georgia. Uh, but he's done it. He's won, you know, four SEC titles and four national titles with uh, three different quarterbacks. And, of course, uh, he's uh, he's done it with uh, three different offensive coordinators. Uh, and just uh, kind of talk about that and, and, and talk about how he's been able to, I, I guess, for lack of a better term, A.J. McCarron was considered a, a great uh, quarterback in college. But the other three guys, Greg McElroy was a solid player, and then he's done it with – two fifth-year seniors, but just kind of talk about being able to win a national championship in this offensive age of college football uh, without a true, you know, what would be considered, well, with only, I guess, one Heisman caliber talent at quarterback in his time in Tuscaloosa. Well, you're right, and he's, uh, he's, he's the last two years, he's won SEC titles with quarterbacks. I don't think anybody would say we're elite. You know, Blake Sims two years ago, Jay Coker last year, and that's not to diminish what they did, but they just they want to lead quarterbacks. I think that's going to has been and will be proven out going forward. Um, but Nick, you know, Nick has his system. He believes in his system. Um, he doesn't need an elite quarterback to win at a high level, and he's one of the rare. They're one of the rare. Most teams that we talk. I talked to Nick about that this week. You know, and you really if you look at the playoffs the last two years, they're the only team of the eight teams that have played the playoff each of the last two years that was not a leading quarterback. I mean, think about this past year. You had Deshaun Watson, Clemson, Connor Cook at Michigan State. Um, I'm drawing a blank. Who was, was the third? Oh, Baker Mayfield at Oklahoma. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Heisman candidate two years ago. You had Jameis Winston, Marcus Mariota, two guys that went what, one, two in the draft. Um, and you also had Cardell Jones, who was playing lights out at that point. So they haven't been able to do it without you know, high-profile elite quarterbacks because they're so good everywhere else. And Nick, and let's give Lane Kiffin some credit as well, have been able to put the quarterbacks in position to succeed. I mean, they, they don't have to go out and win the game. Because Bama's good around them. You know, guys like Amari Cooper, Calvin Ridley, Julio Jones going back several years. They've always been able to run the ball. And they're terrific on defense. I mean, they're deep. Um, they take the ball away. So it, it's just that it's his blueprint that has worked, has continued to work, and I don't, he's certainly not adverse to having one of those guys. Maybe they'll get one in the next couple of years. But right now, they don't have to have a guy that goes out, puts the team on his shoulders at quarterback to win championships. Well, and I was going to ask you about Lane Kiffin. That's an excellent segue. Uh, uh, you, you're very familiar with this scene. You've seen <clears> – <throat> a lot of SEC football in your time, and I felt like probably the best offensive coordinator I'd seen in my tenure watching the University of Alabama over time was Homer Smith. After what I've seen Lane Kiffin put together the last two years, I, I, I uh, really – I know Lane had his issues as a head coach at Tennessee and Southern California. I categorize him in the same breath as Homer Smith on, uh, now after what I saw last year. What, what is your opinion on the job that Lane Kiffin has done and, and, and uh, how, how good an offensive coordinator he truly is? Because he didn't, a lot of people didn't give him uh, a lot of the credit at Southern Cal because they had a lot of talent and then he was a co-OC uh, with uh, Steve Sarkeesian. And many I talked to thought Sarkeesian was actually the wizard behind the curtain. Now, we're, to me, it looks like that may not have been the case. Well, Lane's problems at Tennessee didn't have anything to do with coaching the team and recruiting and the way the team played between the white lines. Now, maybe at, at SC it was a little bit more of that because they, they certainly did underachieve when you look at their talent level there. But he was the head coach. He was managing the whole program. And I think that was, that was Lane's issues. Coaching football has never really been Lane's issue. He's a really good coach, great play caller great at creating mismatches. I mean, you talk to the to the guys that played under him, not only skill guys, but, but offensive linemen, and they'll tell you, and he's a master at that, at, at sort of hitting teams where they're weak, you know, coming back at stuff that has worked, uh, picking the right time to you know, draw something up, and just getting ready for games. And, and Saban, you know, Saban's given that freedom to do that. You know, being, being, people talk about being the defensive coordinator under Nick, and Kirby's been the guy mm-hmm. forever until now. It's Pruitt. But I'm not so sure being Nick's offensive coordinator isn't even harder, you know, because he's constantly breathing down your neck. You know he's, you know, he's going to be watching, and he's not. He never wants to do anything, you know, that's going to put his defense in a bad way. But he's also wants you to be aggressive, and I think that's the big misnomer about Saban offensively. If he pushes his guys to take shots, to be aggressive, but be smart, you know, do it all within the plan. And I think that's sometimes that's a tough balance, you know, sort of a tightrope to walk. But Lane's done it pretty darn well the last couple of years, and he's done it with quarterbacks that um, have not been, again, elite, all-America, all-SEC-type quarterbacks, and yet he's gotten a lot of production out of Blake Sims and Coker. Look at the way Coker played last year down the stretch. Now, 
that's a credit to Jake. He stepped up on, on a big stage, on big stages when, when Bama needed to. And it's a credit to, to Lane and the way he brought him along. Yeah, it really is. Jake Coker, I thought, the last month of the season became a playmaker. And then uh, you could argue he played at the highest level, along with Deshaun Watson. Deshaun was tremendous, but uh, that he almost matched him shot for shot. Was for, he uh, outplayed Connor Cook in the Cotton Bowl. And then in the second half really stepped up uh, against Deshaun Watson. And I guess to segue into that, uh, you, I know you talked to Coach Saban about their quarterback situation now. It's going to play itself out into the fall, but it does sound like uh, the formula is continuing and that the most experienced guy right now is putting himself in position uh, to, to uh, perhaps take the first snap in Dallas. Yeah, and that's super Bateman. And, and, and Nick said, you know, because of his knowledge and his experience, he'd probably be the guy if they played right now. But Things change, you know. Changed last year. I mean, they thought that maybe um, David Cornwell was going to be the guy last year in the spring. Probably played the best, was the most consistent, made the most plays. But as they went through the summer and got into preseason camp, Jay Coker won the job. You know, he won the team. He won the job. We'll see. You know, if Bateman can do that. I think Cornwell still has a shot. He's, I think he's played. And talking to people there, he's played pretty well this spring. Maybe still not been as consistent as they'd like him to be. Blake Barnett probably struggled a little bit. I don't think that it's because he's not talented. Maybe just maybe trying to, you know, do too much, make mm-hmm. too many big plays. Um, maybe he's put you know too much pressure on himself. But the beauty of this is with Saban and that staff is they're going to play it out. And, and come, you know, mid-August, who's the best guy? Who's the guy that's moving the team? Most consistently, the, the guy that the team rallies around, the guy that's not making mistakes, he's going to be the guy. And, and he likes the freshman too, um, Jalen Hurts. I don't know that. Yeah, I don't know that's realistic that he's going to be the guy to start the season. But he's been good enough, in Coach Saban's word, uh, that he's at least in the conversation. And I was going to ask you about him to close the segment, Chris, because the one place where Nick Saban has not you know, started a true freshman really in his tenure uh, throughout L- his time as a coach at Michigan State, LSU, and Alabama is a is a quarterback. Do you think Hertz could be the outlier and the special guy that could break that mold? Well, I mean, he's moving that direction. He's really been impressive with the way he's um, made plays with his feet. I don't think he's thrown nearly as many interceptions as you would think a freshman would throw just coming on the campus in his first spring. I mean, he's taking care of the football. So he's doing all those things. He's just got to keep learning the offense. Um, the players around him, you know, have to keep getting more comfortable with him. I'll say this, knowing Saban as I do, if he's the best guy and he plays the best and the team responds to him the best, he'll do it. Now, that's a, that's a tall order to point out for a true freshman, but uh, they will not be hesitant to play him if they think he gives them the best chance to win. There's no doubt in my mind about that. And that's strong stuff, Chris. We always appreciate it. Uh, you always bring great knowledge and insight uh, to Talking Ball. And let everybody know about your Twitter feed and, of course, where they can read your outstanding coverage. That was uh, ESPN uh, SEC blogger extraordinaire Chris Lowe. Uh, earlier this month on Talking Ball with Drew Armand up at uh, ESPN 97.7 The Zone, and we appreciate 
Drew for sharing that clip with us, and also Ray Scott, his producer, who put it all together originally. So good stuff there. Uh, thanks, Drew, for sharing that. Before we dive into recruiting, about three or four minutes with a John Garcia interview, I wanted to bring you on, Thomas, and uh, just get some of your general observations about the 8 day game. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's one of those great problems to have when you've got a guy like a Rashawn Evans, and I've said this on other programs, but uh, anytime you can record 17 tackles or are credited with 17 tackles, 10 of which are solo in a inner squad scrimmage, that's a big deal. Like there, there's no way to sugarcoat that. That is extremely impressive. And uh, that's what Evans did. So, you know, it's going to be one of those really interesting mix-and-match problems on the front seven. You look at Alabama's front seven last year, and there were obviously the big dogs with uh, Sean Robinson and Jaron Reed and Jonathan Allen, You still ha- and Reggie Ragland, excuse me. And, and you still have Allen, obviously. But the mix-and-match, particularly in the linebackers, is going to be fun to watch because with Sean Dion Hamilton and Reuben Foster – you have a little bit heavier, you know, heavier group. Even though Sean Don Hamilton's a smaller guy, he is a monster compared to how big Rashawn Evans is. So if Alabama has to go heavy against an Arkansas or an LSU, you'll see more SDH. But going into a Tennessee game or a an Ole Miss game, something like that, you'll see tons of Rashawn Evans and. You only need to see what Rashawn Evans was able to do to Deshaun Watson in the national championship game to be excited about that. And let's let's be perfectly clear here. There's not a quarterback that Alabama is going to face outside of the playoff or a bowl game that is going to touch Deshaun Watson in terms of athletic ability. Yes, Josh Dobbs is a solid player, and I don't want to take anything away from him. But Deshaun Watson is a legitimately elite athlete, and so you know Evan should be able to play well there. And you saw the uh, you saw the you just saw the progression, you know. And it's great to see an Evan's character come out, and you finally get to see him on the field. We had him on the show when he first committed, and I think he very he impressed me at least, saying that he trained by racing horses which I have to admit I kind of laughed when he said that. But, man, if it works for you, more power to him. And then offensively, I'm not as hung up on the first-team struggles. The offensive line, like you very accurately said, was in flux. It absolutely was in flux. And you're not going to see that same kind of problem. The thing that I was very heartened by when you talk about the offense, is that the depth along the offensive line, or poorly as the first-team offensive line, as unsettled as it was, played, the second team was able to do some things. And part of the reason the quarterbacks look so good is because Damian Harris got going and made the defense play him honest. So I was pretty encouraged by everything, I understand there's some wailing and thing of teeth about some of the things that were seen on the field on Saturday, but I'm not hung up about it. 
I think Alabama is still one of the elite teams in college football. And given how salty the defense looked with the mix-and-match front sevens and the fact that the secondary is continuing to come along, it's going to be a team that if you're going to beat Alabama, you're going to have to beat them over four quarters. So I'm fairly excited. What about you, Kerry? I, I agree with most of that. Uh, I know <laughs> Fish, Fish made a point that uh, Damian Harris kind of uh, trucked Evans a couple of times, but you know, Evans is still adjusting to play on the inside, and I thought the 17 tackle jumped out to myself as well. It wasn't like it was 17, 12 yards down the field, Brooks Daniels tackles. It was 17 legit tackles, and uh, I think he's come a long way since moving to the inside, and I think that when Alabama is in the nickel, he will be the inside guy next to Ruben Foster. And I think that's exciting. Now, that's not to say he'll be inside on the third down. Uh, he may be out there on the end rushing the quarterback, but the fact they found a place that Rashawn Evans can play around. And Tim Williams, who also was a monster. Uh, I went two for two on my votes in the press box Saturday time. I, thought I did name Tim Williams lineman of the game, and I did name Damian Harris, Dixie Howell. Uh, Kirk wanted to argue with me because of one catch really made. I said, Harris had 130-something total yards. And so he said he was right. Uh, Harris did very well, and the young quarterback, Barnett, and Jalen Hurts did very well. Truth be told, Saban pointed it out, they were going against a combination of defenders, so they should have done well, but they did do well. And I was, uh, I, you know, I was just continuing. That's the second time I've seen Jalen Hurts. The close scrimmage three weeks ago in A Day, and I've just been blown away by that young man. I think poised beyond the years of somebody that should have just gone to the prom. So, that's kind of some of my observations, but what we want to do next uh, is we're going to shift the focus of the show for the next 20, 25 minutes to recruiting because A-Day always brings a lot of recruiting news. This year was no exception. So let's now listen to an interview that Drew DeArmond did on 97.7 Zone in Huntsville with our good friend of BAMS Radio, BAMAMAG.com, Scout.com, recruiting analyst John Garcia. He's uh, one of our foremost sources of Crimson Tide recruiting. John, how are you doing this morning? Cannot complain, Drew. You know, football is back, you know, not only A-Day on the college scene, but in the high school scene, things very busy, uh, and, and high school spring ball starting up in Alabama. So it's a good time of year. Yeah, so there's still a lot of buzz and a lot of talk in recruiting, no doubt about that. And I guess the first thing we need to touch on is Alabama did get a commitment, uh, though it was kind of uh, out of left field and a little bit unexpected considering it's 2019. But running back athlete Trey Sanders of uh, Florida decides to go ahead and pull the trigger for the Tide. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of people say, oh, what's the big deal about a, you know, a kid who's a freshman in high school going into his sophomore season? And I say, look, Bama doesn't typically take those kids yeah. that early. so. So what does that tell you that Alabama thinks of Trey Sanders' ability? You know, and I think that tells you all you need to know about it. He's a big kid, first of all, 6'2", 197, listed as an athlete by Alabama. So he can do a lot of things. State champion already in high school. So his freshman year, he wasn't just a, you know, a casual contributor. He was he was the lead cause on a state championship team in the state of Florida. So that alone is is pretty good merit. Um, but, again, that size, what does he become? Does he become this huge Derrick Henry type of running back? Again, 6'2", 197, Derrick Henry may not have been that big as a high school freshman. So that's something really interesting to focus on. He plays receiver. He plays defense. He does a little bit of everything. So 
he'll be an interesting guy to track over these next couple of seasons. Um, but again, this is an early win for Nick Saban. He grew up in the panhandle of Florida, big Florida State territory, so he was a big FSU fan. But he goes to A-Day, picks up the offer, and you know what, it's just it's all overwhelming for him, and he, he felt that Bama was the school for him. So, again, you can't slight that even though he is a young kid. And that process will be something to monitor as well going forward. But never a bad thing for Bama to get in on a kid who has a great offer list already, including those Florida State Seminoles. So I think uh, it's it sort of looked down upon, I guess, to some degree. But, but that's just the nature of recruiting nowadays. Bama is offering high school freshmen and those kids are bigger, stronger, faster, maybe than they've ever been. So it's not something to sneeze at. Well, and of course we got to go to the other end of the spectrum on this situation. Alabama picks up 2019 Trey Sanders from Port St. Joe, Florida, but they also lose a young man who did not visit. Let's let's get that. Uh, first of all, be uh, forthright with that. He ended up visiting LSU, and uh, he had been committed to Alabama, I guess, for close to uh, to a year. Uh, but Dare Rosenthal. Uh, flips to LSU. To no one's surprise, really, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, Rosenthal was a kid, and we actually saw him two weekends ago in New Orleans, and, you know, we interviewed him, and if, if you caught that interview, I mean, yes. there, was, there was no sense of commitment, and it's not nothing wrong, you know, to his perspective. It's just you, you came out of that interview saying, okay, this kid technically committed, but you sort of <laughs> put an asterisk, and it, it's really 50-50 Bama LSU, and you got the sense that once he transferred out of IMG and went back to Faraday, Louisiana, he was homesick, you know, all that stuff compounded, and you just got the sense that was not great news for the Alabama Crimson Tide. So uh, it just it's one of those things that's just sort of the writing was on the wall, and it's going to happen. And, again, he's a young kid as well, class of 2018, so finishing up uh, his sophomore season, heading into his junior season right now. So still a long way to go for him. He said Bama is still in it. He wants to – take a look at Baylor and Florida State and many other schools who have been in on him. So LSU certainly in the driver's seat, certainly the expectation going forward. However, he's just a kid who's not well-traveled. He hasn't been through a lot, so that could change plenty going forward. But, you know, on the field, great ability, four-star guy, big offensive tackle, defensive tackle type, very similar in his style to Raekwon Davis, who Alabama signed a year ago. But, but certainly his recruiting news, uh, very, very little in the surprise department. Yeah, I, I agreed there. Not really shocked by that development. And then I wanted to talk to you about a story uh, that you, uh, you – it's at the very top of your Twitter feed right now, and he's someone that's being watched because in the last few weeks uh, it's been reported by multiple people in, uh, throughout the industry that, uh, with the, 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 uh, the young man from St. Paul's, uh, the, the defensive lineman Ryan Johnson – could be uh, leaning to Alabama, and I know he had a really good time at A-Day, but he also went to Auburn. This is shaping up to be a – it looks to be an in-state battle. Yeah, I think that the expectation, you know, as it is with most of the top kids in-state, is, is to be an Iron Bowl type of situation. But, you know, Johnson, you know, he's a smart kid. Let's start there. His first offer was Duke. He's got a, a committable Stanford offer. I mean, this kid, <laughs> he's a very, very smart kid. Got the Vandy offer as well. So he's not going to be back down into a corner. And then there was a sense over these last two visits to Alabama, really twice in the last two weeks, that Bama was going to go full throttle and try to lock this thing in. And they did. And he even you know, put in the interview that we did 
over the weekend, he said Bama pulled out all the stops. They compared him to Ryan Anderson, who's also from South Alabama, and they said, hey, Ryan committed on A-Day. Like kind of nudge-nudge, you know? So <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't go through with it, uh, even though they, they made a push for it, because he's a smart kid. He just got a USC offer. He wants to see USC. Notre Dame has been high on his list. We mentioned the academics. He wants to get out to Notre Dame this summer. So I think his decision process is probably a little more accelerated than he would let on, but I still don't anticipate it ending here anytime soon. I think late summer into the fall is probably the likely scenario for him. But at the end of the day, Bama or Auburn, probably where he is going to end up. But he's certainly, you know, with his pedigree, good family as well, he's going to evaluate those schools and take a look at those schools. I mean, he spent three days at Stanford a couple weeks back. So this kid, it's going to be an honorable situation most likely, but it's not just about those programs. So I'm not surprised that even though Bama pushed, Johnson sort of pumped the brakes, but but no doubt Bama is in great position here. And of course, they as you said in the story, they compared him to Ryan Anderson. What is your evaluation of his uh, style of play, John? I see him a little bit differently. I'm, I think mm-hmm. I'm closer to putting him in the Deshaun Hand category. Ah, okay. I think he's I think he's a he's a he's a tweener. He's a five or a six. So you know, in layman's terms, five technique, hand in the ground, on the edge. You know, a, a strong side defensive end, if you will, and then the six technique is what you see a lot of Ryan Anderson doing, stand-up, pass rushing, things like that. So his body type, you know, 6'3 and a half or so, 260, he's, he could either go, you know, he can go one way or the other. But I think eventually he's probably a hand-in-the-ground type. But right now, Bama thinks he's a stand-up type, and he's been working on that. So that, that could tell you a lot about his recruitment and where he could be leaning. He's specifically working on playing that stand-up position, although not many schools except Alabama, are recruiting him for that position. So that could be a little reading the tea leaves there with Ryan Johnson. He's really focused on it. We don't see it much from him in games because at St. Paul's he's a versatile lineman, outside-inside type of guy. Uh, but off off the field, he's been working on that a lot. So it's going to be interesting to see him going forward. We'll actually see him this week, and he's competing at the opening uh, out in Charlotte, and we'll be in on hand. So hopefully he does a little stand-up for us, and we can uh, update that evaluation. And then uh, some developments in the last week or so, even though we know IMG is going on a tour and uh, will be visiting Alabama. One young man, it looks like he's not part of the IMG program anymore and has come back here to North Alabama is Will Ignat uh, from Buckhorn, who I know you're very familiar with, Buckhorn High School, John Holiday, their new head football coach. That had to be a nice present for him. It looks like Will Ignat is coming back uh, to Buckhorn. Yeah, he, he's actually already back up there. He uh, there was mm-hmm. spring break, and you know, RMG is one of these programs where you know they've got so many kids from so many places. So when those kids go home for spring break, sometimes there's really a, a slim chance they come back. And and we hear that's part of the situation with Will Ignat. You know, he had been gone since January. Right. Um, he locked it down at IMG. It wasn't it wasn't you know pure homesickness or anything like that. It just came down to it not being the best fit. He said it was a decision between he and his mother, so perhaps she you know, influenced him a little bit on, on coming back home. But like you said, big news for Buckhorn High School, certainly, and, and big news for both Alabama and Auburn, arguably the top two schools on his list. Georgia, extremely high on his list as well. So I think all three of those schools benefit from him being back in the state of Alabama as opposed to in central Florida where Florida was pushing Florida State and Miami, which even cracked his top ten list. So I think all that is going to sort of play out, I guess, how we originally thought it would, being an Iron Bowl scenario. And, and we hear there could be some flip-flopping in terms of who's atop that list. So he could be a guy that 
maybe we didn't focus on as much from the Iron Bowl perspective that maybe now we sort of refocused on it because it could be a big uh, linebacker domino. And as you know, Drew, tons of linebackers in the state this year. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask you. Throughout uh, the last uh, you know couple of months, Auburn was mentioned with Ignat, uh, even though he even him being up at IMG, I think the Florida schools had made a push, but Auburn was always kind of considered the favorite. Now hearing Alabama maybe making a push, John. Yeah, you know, and that's that's where it, it always gets interesting when a kid you know comes home. You know, when did these schools know about it? Uh, we heard he he was a surprise visitor over the weekend on A Day, so that's really where a lot of this, I guess, buzz started picking up with the Crimson Tide. Now, I will caution you, you know, Ignat's a guy like K.J. Britt in state who has had several different quote-unquote leaders for his commitment. <laughs> right. Auburn for a very long time. He came out with a top ten in order just earlier this month, and Georgia was atop that list. And now, if it is Alabama, it's going to be something to monitor. But, uh, again, you know, take it with a grain of salt because he's a kid who has been, you know, high on many schools at one time. But, but it does paint a picture with – an Iron Bowl battle, possibly with some Georgia sprinkled in. Nice. And, of course, we knew you'd be on top of that situation, John. And and then another interesting situation, because Alabama is still uh, trying to identify a quarterback with 2017. Now they've lost Jake from, of course, Tua Tagovailoa. We've talked about him. He visited, had a very good time. But I wanted to ask you, because it's, I know he's committed to Texas A&M still from Las Vegas, but uh, Tate Martell now announced he will take all five of his official visits. Is Alabama still involved in this situation? You know, he's interesting, Drew. You know, before he committed to A&M, you know, Bama was in his top five. They were, he really yes. liked. He really liked a lot about the Crimson Tide uh, before settling on Texas A&M. And the irony here is that a lot of people compare him to Johnny Manziel, and this is on the field strictly, I, I want to caution. Uh, you know, smaller guy, under six foot, but super elusive, kind of crafty when he does take off with it, good enough arm uh, to get everything done. I mean, he's a five-star on scout.com for a reason. So uh, he's one that's going to be interesting. He announced yesterday that, you know, hey, I'm committed to A&M, but I'm going to explore all my options. I'm going to take all of my visits. So I think Alabama has a good position if it wants to push to be one of those visits. But you mentioned Tagovailoa. I think that visit recently could not have gone better. He went to Bama, then he went to Ole Miss and Auburn, then he returned to Alabama before getting mm-hmm. back over to Hawaii. And that usually is not by accident. You know, you, you track the visits more than what kids say. And a kid returning, you know, twice to one school knowing that, hey, this, this may be the last time I could visit Alabama before a decision, so let me get back to Tuscaloosa to, just to get a couple more evaluation points before we head home. You know, I think that says a lot about where the Crimson Tide stands. And how about this? You know, when's the last time it was Bama versus USC for a quarterback <laughs> from the West Coast? You know, so right. that's an interesting scenario with, with Tagovailoa. But these guys are similar in that they're both dual threats both much closer to what Lane Kiffin wants and what Lane Kiffin has recruited since he's taken over as offensive coordinator, especially recently with Blake Barnett. And now everyone got a glimpse of Jalen Hurts as well. This is the direction Lane Kiffin wants to go with the quarterback position. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. And, and now, speaking of offensive line, uh, he made the trip from Brooklyn, New York, uh, all the way down to, to Tuscaloosa for a day. So that's got to be significant, though many people think uh, he may end up staying out on the uh, East Coast. But your thoughts on uh, Isaiah Wilson and his reaction to the visit? 
Yeah, you know, he he didn't say much, but but you don't have to when, when you say that. You know, he <laughs> tweeted something to the effect of, if you guys are wondering how my visit is, just know that I absolutely love wearing crimson and white. I mean, so we heard behind the scenes that things went extremely well. He's a Brooklyn kid, as you mentioned, so that's Mario Cristobal territory. So he's got the, the double responsibility there because Cristobal, of course, also coaches tackles at Alabama. So this kid is going to be high on Bama's board, and he was high on Bama's list for several years at this point. Uh, so him getting down for that first visit, extremely critical because he's one, you know, like you mentioned, from Brooklyn. How many times are you going to get down to Tuscaloosa before you make a decision? So this could be the only time. He could return for an official visit, but he's got a lot of big-time schools on his list. He's a big-time talent, extremely raw, uh, good size, but he could be a bookend, first-round draft pick type of left tackle one day. So for Bama to make that impression, really big news. We know the Crimson Tide has prioritized that, that offensive tackle position, not only with him, but in-state guys, Austin Troxel, Kendall Randolph. Uh, so offensive tackle is going to be uh, an ongoing situation. Already have one committed in Alex Leatherwood. So uh, I think the Tide would be happy pairing Leatherwood with any of those guys that I just mentioned. And certainly it's sort of stocked up right now with Isaiah Wilson. And then speaking of another lineman, uh, John, uh, I know scout.com, he's been kind of hard to – to pin down since he went on the official visit. Uh, I, I did not see that he returned for A-Day, but just your thoughts on uh, on uh, on uh, Josiah Coatney and where his decision-making process may stand. We know, of course, he's going to still be a 2016. Yeah, big-time defensive lineman. He's one who we knew about in high school. I actually saw him play a high school game about three years ago. Uh, <laughs> he was You talk about a tweener. I mean, he was probably 6'3", 240, but now – He's much bigger. Now he, he looks like a college defensive lineman. Well, he is a college defensive lineman, but much closer to a defensive end, defensive tackle type, something Alabama really wanted to add to its recruiting class in 2016. So he's certainly in the running. He took the official about a week ago. It was his last trip. And then he came out with a top four in order. He said Bama and Ole Miss were tied mm-hmm. at number one. So I think it's going to come down to these two programs, Ole Miss, had him on campus really really close to when Alabama did. So it's going to come down to those two. He really can't separate them at this point, but he's got to figure it out. He wants to make a decision in the next two weeks, and he kind of has to because he's a May graduate. So he basically, kind of what Jake Coker did, you know, for reference sake a couple of years ago, he's going to graduate in May and basically get right on over to Tuscaloosa to be a part of this 2016 class, or, or, or Oxford for that matter. So I think Bama's in pretty good position. They've prioritized him really since seemingly the moment they, they knew Demetrius Robertson wasn't going to be in the picture anymore. So about three weeks to a month, they've really been hitting him hard. He got the scholarship offer, and they set up the visit almost immediately. So I think the Crimson Tide's in pretty good shape. Ole Miss you know, had similar needs defensively, similar uh, repertoire, reputation, if you will. So I think it's going to be a close battle. But I think as of now, with the last visit, he mentioned championship pedigree twice in the mm-hmm. interview with Scout.com. So I think those kind of things lean you a little bit more towards Alabama, but but certainly it's very close. And uh, and where does he project, John? I've I've heard he's listed at 285. Uh, is is he going to be an inside guy, or is he going to be someone that can play inside and out? I think the latter, Drew. I think especially since he's he's a guy who's he's a freshman in college right now, so he's he's got three years of eligibility oh, left. Yes. So you don't have you don't have as much time. 
um, to, to beat, bulk him up you know, a ton or slim him down a ton. So I think he's going to be exactly what you said, sort of an inside-outside guy. We've seen that with Alabama a ton here lately with Jaron Reed, John Allen, all these guys. So I think he's going to be in that mold eventually. Not saying he's that caliber of player, but certainly he's an athlete. He's a very good athlete, and we mentioned he's packed on a ton of weight already. So you wonder how much more he can fit on that frame. But either way, I think he's going to be a situational guy inside on these downs, outside maybe on passing downs. So he's an interesting guy, a guy who, who's versatile, who you need. You know, the Dalvin Tomlinson's, Darren Lakes of the world don't get the headlines, but those guys really important to that defensive line rotation, and I think that's where Coatney can contribute. And then speaking of defensive line, he's he's uh, named Alabama his leader following the A-Day visit. Uh, he's, of course, another Georgia native, and, of course, that's B.J. Sharp uh, from Macon, Georgia, Southwest High School. Uh, do you think uh, how high is he up on the board? I mean, I, 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 you know, I've, I've studied him some, but not a lot. But he's been really talking uh, Alabama up quite a bit. But I know Alabama's wanting to take uh, several D linemen. Where does he fit in? Yeah, you know, he's one that's fairly high on the board, Drew. You know, they gave him the verbal offer about three weeks ago right. or so. So it's all it's all sort of new with Bama and B.J. Sharp, but. But certainly the visit, you know, meant a lot to him. As you mentioned, he named Alabama his leader following the visit, along with speedy running back Travis Etienne, who also named Bama their, or his leader. But uh, with Sharp, I think it's a situation where you want to see a little bit more from the Alabama perspective. So that mm-hmm. means the Crimson right. Tide will go check him out in person this spring, mm-hmm. see how he looks. And if not this spring, invite him back to camp this summer just to validate some of the things they liked on tape, which is where that initial scholarship offer came out. He, he's a late riser, Drew. I mean, this kid had no scholarship offers like two or three months ago, and now right. all of a sudden he's got Alabama, Mississippi State. He says Georgia's close to offering. So all of a sudden he, he's this SEC prospect. So I would imagine a lot of schools feel like Alabama. They like him, but they need to see a little bit more just to, I guess, figure out why there was such a delay in his recruitment. And that's just that's normal process. It's not sleeping on a kid or anything like that. That's just the nature of recruiting nowadays. You have to evaluate all the way through so they want to see maybe how much bigger he gets and how he looks in pads now that he's become this SEC prospect all of a sudden. But Bama, obviously, if it pushes for him, I think B.J. Sharp would be a part of the class today if Bama wanted him. Well, and uh, you brought up another prospect, a uh, great segue, Travis Etienne uh, from Jennings, Louisiana. He's uh, a guy that looks to be another kind of fast riser right now. Uh, Alabama has two running back commitments in Brian Robinson of Hillcrest, who's been very impressive on the uh, – combine circuit and then of course Najee Harris the number one overall player by scout.com just kind of talk about Alabama and Travis Etienne right now well Drew you know you know they want three backs you know this there's a lot of attrition at the position as we know as as yes. Bama fans have seen after both Scarborough and Damian Harris no proven players and you could argue that those guys aren't really proven at this point either so it's a rare situation for Alabama so that's why there's such a need at the position so you get two guys in 2016 but 2017 is the class where they really want to load up and get, you know, what they had a couple years back. You know, in that same class, I believe Ingram, Lacey, those guys were all within a class of each other. So mm-hmm. that's what they want to sort of create one more time. So you mentioned the two that are committed, and, and certainly there's a long way to go to hold on to those two. But but ATN is the newest name on the board, a really fast guy. He's from Louisiana, so you know the pedigree there, 200 pounds, 5'11", clocked 4'4", at the opening of the Orleans two weekends ago. So I think... 
you know, his tape is great. You know, he ran for 3,000 yards uh, as a junior, so you can't be that horrible running for 3,000 yards, 50 total touchdowns as well. Um, but I guess they want to, you know, validate that speed. If he if he comes in as fast as he looks on tape, then that's, that's a reason to pull the trigger. And that's what Bama did when he visited. He said he almost committed. He was so excited. A uh, kid who grew up in Louisiana but admitted he was a fan of the Crimson Tide, not the LSU Tigers. So that's something interesting within his recruitment as well. But, but like you said, he's a riser. He's picking up a ton of offers, over a dozen at this point. He wants to check out. Some of these other schools that are offering scholarship offers sort of out of the blue, even though he picked up the Alabama one on a visit. So we're not quite ready to make that commitment, but he wants to see a couple more schools, and then he could be ready to pull the trigger. So certainly one of a few running backs high on the board right now for Alabama, so a a guy to keep an eye on. And then finally, uh, I wanted to ask you about Standard Samuels III, uh, the cornerback. He commented on his visit to Alabama he said that uh, he felt like they are in pretty good position. Uh, he's going to be. I, I, I have. I've always thought he'd be hard to uh, pull out of the state of Florida. But what's your take on him? Yeah, I agree. You know, uh, he's the son of Stanford Samuels yes. the second, uh, who played at Florida State and in the NFL. Uh, he's actually his high school coach right now as well. So that certainly doesn't hurt the Seminoles' case. Uh, and then Michigan, if he does leave the state, I think Michigan right now, probably the school he would end up at, goes to Flanagan High School in Pembroke Pines. And if that school rings the bell, not only did they win a, a Class 8A state championship in, in, in Florida last year, but that's where Devin Bush was the head coach. And Devin uh. Bush is now on staff at Michigan. His son, Devin Bush Jr., another Florida State legacy type, he went to Michigan over Florida State. So Jim Harbaugh, you know, what he's doing in Alabama he did it at Flanagan, and not only did he sign Bush and get the elder Bush to join his staff, but they signed two other players from the high school team. So Flanagan has sort of a mini pipeline to Michigan. So a lot of people think it's not Florida State, it's going to be Michigan. So Bama knows that, so they, they certainly presented him as well as they could over the weekend, and it, and it made an impact. He said 70,000 fans was crazy, the atmosphere, and most importantly probably for Alabama, he got to sit down with Derek Ansley. He's been – recruited by Saban forever and all these other coaches. But Ansley, this was the first time he could sit down with you know his would-be position coach. So I think that was important for Alabama, and it was enough to put the tie into that top four with the aforementioned Florida State, Michigan, and Georgia, which had made a push because Kirby Smart, when he was at Alabama, had a great relationship with Samuels, who Bama has been high on for really as long as everyone has, a couple of years now. This is a a top-five corner that I've seen since I got this job. And, and you're talking Vernon Hargraves, Marlon Hunt, wow. Tony Brown, and, and Stanford Samuels. I think those guys, like Jalen Ramsey, I think those would probably be my starting five, if you will, for, for the top high school cornerbacks I've seen. So that's how good he is, top-ten player in the entire country and, of course, the number one corner in the country. So you talk about a big victory. This would be maybe the biggest cornerback victory Nick Saban has secured if he could pull it off because not only the legacy status – to Florida State, but, but certainly the, the pipeline and the threat of Jim Harbaugh in Michigan. Yeah, it really would be. Great stuff, John, as always. You'd have outstanding insight into that situation. Well, uh, we appreciate the conversation, as always. Let everybody know about your Twitter feed and, of course, where they can read your stuff. That was John, John Garcia of Scout.com and uh, BattleMap.com, my uh, cohort, talking to our Drew Armand of ESPN 97.7 Zone in Huntsville. We, again, Thank them for sharing that with us. At this time, we're going to take our one and only break of the
evening. And when we return, we're going to tell you who won the awards from Avery Johnson tonight at his first Alabama basketball banquet, first one where he actually coached the season. Uh, so we're going to take a break now. We'll be back soon. And here's a little tribute to a legend that we lost today. Rogers Nelson, who passed away today at age 57. Uh, that's pretty sobering for me because that's my age. But uh, rest in peace, Prince. Uh, God bless the family and, and the many friends that he had and fans. Many people grieving today. But some people that were pretty happy tonight were those that attended the Alabama basketball banquet down at Coleman Coliseum on the campus of the University of Alabama down in Tuscaloosa. And Coach Avery Johnson uh, presided. Uh, now, he presided last year as well because Coach Grant had already left by the time he had the banquet. But this is the first time that Coach Johnson presided over a banquet where he had actually coached the team. 
And they did finish 18 and 15. They did make the NIT in his first season. They made the postseason. So they were kind of celebrating that tonight uh, with uh, several thousand of their fans and members of the Customers Tip-Off Club. And uh, without further ado, here is a list of the awards that were given out tonight by Coach Johnson and his staff. Uh, the Outstanding Freshman Award goes to forward Dante Hall. The Most Improved Player Award goes to transfer guard Arthur Edwards, who was a senior because he was a grad transfer that was immediately eligible. They wouldn't have gone 18-15 without Edwards. I can see that averaged almost 10 a game. The Outstanding Defensive Player goes to sophomore forward Riley Norris, the pride of Albertville, Alabama, uh, the most hard-nosed player on the team. The outstanding offensive player, senior guard Ritten of Asahan, the fifth-year Yankee Belgium, who garnered pretty much all the awards one could garner. And uh, this is one of my favorite ones, the Coach Avery Award uh, for, you know, hustle and character and savviness. That went to walk-on freshman guard Lawson he had not long after he committed uh, about a year ago, and he explained to us over Auburn. Auburn thought he was going to be a on there. He went down there and uh, was watching practice. He saw Justin Coleman. He thought Avery was going to jump on him, and Avery just told him to keep shooting. And at that point, Lawson knew that's where he wanted to play and who he wanted to play for, and obviously Avery likes him too because he is the winner of the Coach Avery Award. So those are the awards that were passed out tonight after the banquet, and of course the MVP was also written to Bossahan. So uh, that brings you up to date on Alabama basketball. Speaking of Justin Coleman, he uh, committed and signed to play for Sanford uh, in Birmingham a small Baptist school on Lakeshore Drive, but he will have to sit out a year nonetheless and then will likely be the starting point guard for two straight seasons for the Bulldogs. So uh, congrats to him. He'll be playing for Scott Padgett, uh, a former starter at the University of Kentucky who knows a thing or two about basketball, head coach at Sanford University. So congrats to Justin on that. We're sorry to see him go, but it is what it is. And, you know, we do have another guest coming up and. uh, about five minutes, but I want to talk about what's going on in some of the other Bama sports, uh, much of which I witnessed in person. And if I didn't witness in person, I watched at least a portion of it on my phone. So here we go. We'll start off with baseball. Uh, they had a successful two out of three series victory over Ole Miss over the weekend. I was able to be there for the last three innings of the Saturday game after I sauntered over from A Day. And by the way, uh, at age 57, that's a pretty long walk from uh, Blind Denny to, to the Joe, but it's all good uh, because that helped get me ready for the uh, walk uh, to salute and raise money for uh, pancreatic cancer patients, uh, which we're going to be doing in honor of Greg the Bird Calhoun, the late founder of Bands Radio. And that will take place at Veterans Park in Hoover on Valleydale Road this Saturday morning at 9 o'clock, uh, several BAM's uh, tailgaters will be there, such as uh, Gretchen and Jamie and uh, several others. So look forward to that. Oh, back to sports. Uh, So the baseball team then proceeded to split a couple of midweek games this week at home. 
Uh, you really need to win all those out of conference at home, but they did not succeed in winning both this week. They won Tuesday night over uh, Troy State, or uh, Troy University, and then they lost last night to the South Alabama Jaguars. So I'm sure that uh, Ashley gave Thomas a little grief about that. Hopefully a little bit. Not, a little bit. Hopefully not, hopefully not much. Uh, <laughs> softball, on the other hand, defeated South Alabama, which, let me tell you, South Alabama has an excellent softball program, people. They got a pretty good baseball program, too, uh, but they have an excellent softball program. How she does it, they always manage to get great pitchers down there. Uh, I guess they tell them to be 45 minutes from Gulf Shores, come play here, and it works. I don't know. But uh, Alabama beat South Alabama in softball 4-2, but the fact of the matter is the Jaguars catcher had a two-run throwing error uh, on a ball that landed just out in front of home plate. She grabbed it and threw it down the right field line over the first baseman's head, allowing two runs to score with two outs uh, around the fourth or fifth inning. And it gave Alabama the 4-2 lead, and they hung on. Uh, the win went to Little John. The save went to Osorio. So they're doing great. The softball team is ranked fourth in everything you can be ranked in. And NCAA softball, SEC softball, for that matter, is so competitive. Uh, when you're fourth in America, that's pretty good. Now, I'll give Auburn credit. They're second. Uh, they're beating a lot of people, and they're beating them badly with their bats. But Alabama and Auburn don't play in the regular season, oddly enough. That's a scheduling court no one can figure out. Thanks, SEC, for that, I guess. But uh, they'll probably end up facing off in a few weeks down in Starkville at the SEC softball tournament. But Bama, before that, though, has got a, a big uh, series this weekend against another top 15 team from our conference, the Kentucky Wildcats. Uh, they'll play Friday night and then Saturday night and then Sunday afternoon. And Bama, they need a sweep, but two out of three would probably be okay. The big thing for Bama is to stay in the top eight in the RPI. But no reason to think they can't get at least two out of three. And a sweep is not out of the question. Kentucky's good, but Bama's top four. There's a difference in top four and top 15, obviously. Baseball, on the other hand, has a pretty tall task. They've got to go to uh, face a ranked team out in College Station, Texas A&M. The A's are really good in baseball this year. Uh, They have a much better record than Alabama. And if Alabama, I'm going to, you hate to set your standards this low, but if Alabama could take one out of three, I think most people would be uh, happy about that. Um, and Thomas points out in the back chat that the South Alabama Jaguar baseball program is probably going to win their conference and that the campus is legitimately excited over it. Well, they should be excited over the softball team as well. They have, when it comes to the diamond sports, baseball and softball, they, the Jags are, are always good. And I you know, that's, that's a private school that's down there in Mobile. You know, good job. Good job. Uh, and, and, again, the Bama softball team was quite fortunate to be able to beat the Jags the other night. But it's now time to get back to football talk. A great friend of this show and a, and a good friend of mine and Drew's. Uh, of course, we're still hoping Drew will join us here in a few minutes. But right now, we're going to bring on to the Asian Rim Hotline our friend and a great friend of the show, William Redfish Barger, former offensive lineman for the University of Alabama, and uh, he likes to break down tape, whether it's Alabama playing or Alabama recruits playing or whatever. He's a, a man that watches a lot of video, and he can uh, lend his expert analysis. But before we get to anything to do with recruiting at all, let's go back one more time and, and rehash with William the A-Day game, which ended up only 7-3, to three. But the team that scored the seven should have had at least six or nine more. Could have had 12 more, but I 
they automatically make a 54-yard field goal. But the uh, team that had the four missed field goals was the team that got the late touchdown and won the stake. So I guess, William, in the end, justice was served. Well, you know, I try and tell people, if, if you want to see an example of a byproduct of a high-scoring A-Day game, all you, have to do, all you have to do is go back to the spring of 2003, and uh, you can see how that season played out, and it wasn't very positively. Um, you know, the low score was very good news for me. Um, you know, you want the defense to be ahead of the offense, um, especially in a program that is, you know, heavy-handed on the defensive side and, you know, believes that they win football games on both sides of the line of scrimmage. Um, you know, and again, I think sometimes you, people tend to look too much into an individual performance um, in the A-Day game. And, you know, sometimes that's all certain people get to see is what they see either at the game or on ESPN. But, you know, that can be very misleading. If you, you know, watch that game Saturday, then, you know, you might think that Blake Barnett had the best, you know, um, you know if you watch the game Saturday, you might think that Damian Harris is the number one running back. But that's not the case. So I, you know, I think you have to look at the whole body of work um, before you, you know, form an opinion. Uh, like you said, you know, about watching film. Um, I focus so much during a game, um, a lot of times of watching, you know, the line of scrimmage play that I have to go back and, and watch the replay a couple of times just to see what the other positions are doing um, versus when I saw it live. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what I did with the 8A game and, uh, a lot of positives. I really, I mean, I guess you could say that it wasn't a good thing that, you know, Adam Griffin missed all those field goals. But, you know, the last couple of football games of 2015, he didn't miss that many at all. So um, I just don't think you can, you know, lead too much into it. Um, you know, did the first-team offense struggle against the first-team defense? Absolutely. But, you know, that's what you want to see. Um, you know, I try and tell people, tell people the same story for 25 years now. You know, in the spring, all spring practice of 1992, uh, we didn't get an opportunity to celebrate that many field goals or touchdowns against that 92 defense. We would high-five each other if we got a first down. So, I just think, you know, it's, it's time to sit back and, you know, let the coaches get out on the road during the May evaluation period. It's a very fluid time of the year in recruiting, but I just don't see how anybody, you know, I've heard some negative vibes about the quarterback play. I've, I've heard some, you know, negative vibes about the offensive line. Um, I just don't see how you could watch that stuff, um, you know, with a lucid mind and come away with a bad taste in your mouth. It was a very, very productive spring practice. Um, I've been around Nick Saban enough, you know, long enough now to know when he starts mentioning individual players in the media, especially young, unproven players. That's a very big positive sign for how he feels about this team and where the program's at. And, uh, you know, I could make a very um, strong debate that, you know, this 2016 team coming out of spring practice this past Saturday looks much better to me than the last two teams did. So they're, they're in pretty strong company at the same stage, in my opinion. William, let's dive a little bit deeper into the offensive line. Coach Saban made a very strong point in his post-game press conference Saturday that that was not the first offensive line that people saw, and not to draw the conclusion that it was. And of course, we knew that Cam Robinson wasn't out there, and he dropped a strong hint that Lester Cotton will be at left guard and that Ross Pierce will be at center. 
But he also dropped a hint that uh, neither of the positions on the right side of the line had been settled. Those were just the guys that, that took the reps at A-Day. I, I think that you have finally convinced me uh, that Big Shank Taylor will get out there and bust his butt and listen to Scott Cochran and Amy Bragg, the uh, conditioning and the nutritioning people, enough to get off this 15 or 20 pounds he needs to drop and, and win the right guard job back. So I want you to talk a little bit about what you saw Saturday from the offensive line, first and second group, and also how you think that right side might change before the USC game. Well, you know, I think, first of all, that's uh, they got put into some tough situations. I mean, uh, you know, I think any time you get, you know, Tim Williams in a in a passing situation where he thinks it's going to be a pass, um, I don't care if it's Cameron Robinson or, or any left tackle, it, it's going to be a difficult assignment to slow a disruptive player like him down. Um, you know, I don't know if you've seen the broadcast or not, but, you know, Herb Street and Joey Galloway were oohing and on every time they, uh, you know, the ball was snapped. So, and, you know, you've got another guy over there on the right side that, you know, I thought gave Jonah Williams a very good baptism by fire and Ryan Anderson. Um, you know, he's probably the third leading sack uh, production guy coming back on this team. And, you know, he, he got the best of Jonah a couple times early on with some, some counter inside uh, spin moves. But I thought for his first, you know, spring A-Day game, starting at right tackle against one of the best front sevens in college football, um, the kid did a fantastic job. Um, but, you know, it was just very difficult for all the quarterbacks, um, you know, Bateman and Cornwell, to get any type of um, fluidity going and some consistency when they're getting disrupted that much in the passing game. Um, you know, I thought those were some interesting comments by Coach Saban. You don't really see him really go that far out there into the future, um, you know, post-A-Day in a lot of cases. Um, you know, and again, I think it's a great situation. Obviously, Alphonse Taylor was in the doghouse this spring. Um, he's got some work to do both on the field and off the field to, to get back in good graces. But I thought that was kind of a olive branch that Coach Saban extended to him in the press conference. You know, they want to see him get back, get that starting position back. You know, you saw, uh, you know, when the, the spring awards were handed out, he won the Leroy Jordan Headhunter Award, for Christ's sake. <laughs> I don't ever remember an offensive lineman, uh, you know, winning that type of award. So that tells me that despite the doghouse situation that he was in, um, he did a pretty good job of, uh, you know, trying to earn his way back up the depth chart. Um but, you know, I don't see where, unless they were to move Lester Cotton um, back over to right tackle, and I don't think they want to do that. You know, I personally think that what you saw Saturday, um, you know, obviously not Corin Curvin, but it'll be Cam Robinson, Lester Cotton, Ross Pierce, Bacher, um, either Alphonse Taylor or Brandon Kennedy, and probably Jonah Williams at right tackle when you, when you tip off against uh, Southern Cal. That that's as good a guess as any. I just wonder, William, if Kervin can make a big enough push to beat out Williams. I think if he does, it'll be because he's a senior with some more experience. But I think if he doesn't, that Kervin will still be the swing tackle, like Alfred McCullough in 2011, and back up both sides. That do you feel like Kervin can can beat Jonah out, or do you think Jonah's pretty much got it locked up? 
you know, I think based on what I saw Saturday and, and how good that he looked at that position with the other two scrimmages, um, you know, that was kind of a, you know, I thought of a, 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 con, a, a conviction, so to speak, of what where Corbin is at in his development. Um, you know, there's a lot of other good rush defensive ends besides Tim Williams in this league. Um, you know, if he struggles that much against Tim Williams, unless he can improve that aspect of his game, um, you know, over the summer and in fall camp, I mean, you know, you, you have to, you know, look at the ability of having a guy like Carl Lawson lined up across from him or a Derek Barnett or even a Miles Garrett. So, you know, seeing how badly he struggled in that aspect of it, I think right now um, Jonah Williams is that guy. I mean, you know, Jonah got beat by a couple of counter moves. Um, you know, and unless the quarterback's back there squeezing the ball to death and not getting rid of it in 2.5 to 3 seconds like their coach to do at this level, um, you know, maybe Ryan Anderson would have hit the quarterback after he threw the football Saturday um, versus Jonah, but it wouldn't have been just the, you know, you know, there were most of the times when Curvin got beat, he never got his hands on, on Tim Williams. And so that's the difference in the two of them right now. That's fair enough. Uh did you like what you saw blocking-wise from Hale Hentges and Brandon Green? I did. I did, and I think that's going to be something that's uh, going to be an improved part of this team. Um, you know, I wasn't really worried that much about the tight end blocking because of the added size um, that the Hentges has put on. Um, you know, Brandon Green's been a very steady, solid performer you know, as a hybrid tight end offensive tackle for a couple of years now. You know, I think the, the most pleasant surprise at the tight end position, um, and it doesn't involve blocking at this stage with him being 225 pounds, but I think it's blatantly obvious that Miller Forrestal is probably one of the best steals of this class. When you look at where he was rated as a recruit coming in as an early enrollee and, and how much he was targeted in, in all three of the scrimmages, including the A-Day game. Yeah, it appears that Miller is ready to at least be the backup to O.J. Howard as the uh, quote-unquote receiving tight end, while Brandon Green will back up Hale Hempton. So that's four quality football players. and Everybody that watched scrimmages, including A-Day, that saw Miller Forstall was pretty much blown away with his route running and his concentration. And, uh, you know, he, he's just, he just seems to know how to find a, a hole in the defense. So big, big shout-out to him. Speaking of freshmen, though, he, too far without talking about the man and as the mouth beat to death at his prom. You know, and I know to see more than just practice and open scrimmages. Tell me, you know, I, and I've already voiced this opinion to you privately, but I, I don't think it's a done deal that Jalen Hurts redshirts this year, William. Well, you know, there's a pretty good former college quarterback and, the, you know, probably the best college football analyst in, in, in the country that agrees with you, Kirk Herbstreit. Um, and, you know, Kerry, we talked about this privately. Uh, you know, I was screaming from the rooftops for two years in 2013. I mean, 2013, 2000, uh, excuse me, 2012, 2013. I'm losing track of my years here. Um them to kind of do what you're alluding to with, with Hertz. I wanted to see that same package with Blake Sims and Kenyon Drake. Um, if you go back to that time period, 
Um, you know, obviously AJ McCarron was the entrenched starter at quarterback, but you know, because the way the games would shake out, because of Coach Saban being so stubborn, you know, at pulling starters until very late in the game, there wasn't a lot of you know backup quarterback depth being developed, at least in game time experience. And you know, that's when there was that huge log jam, uh, you know, at the running back position. Um, you know, T.J. Yeldon and, and Kenyon Drake. Um, you know, Ken Penny, uh, Kamara, uh, Tyron Jones. And, and, you know, I just – I think that's just something – because Alabama doesn't show that hardly at all, I just thought that would have been a very difficult facet for defensive coordinators to prepare for. Um, you know, you get that typical pro-style ground-and-pound game going for three-and-a-half quarters. And when the other team, you know, on the other side of the ball is dog-tired at the end of the game, you know, all of a sudden you bring in two – you know, dynamic playmakers, and you don't even you tell them don't even run a pass. I mean, don't even try and throw a pass. You know, if it's third and eight, you're on the zone read. And uh, I'd really like to see them do that with, uh, you know, Jalen Hurts and Damian Harris this year. Um, you know, I think Hurts is obviously a very, very um, much further along than anybody thought he was going to be. You know, in the 25 years that I've been watching Alabama spring practices, um, he, he looked the most comfortable and the most poised, um, you know, out there all, all spring long, and including Saturday. You know, there's a lot of scuttlebutt out there on the Internet about, well, he only faced the second-team defense. And, you know, my counterpoint to that would be uh, that second-team defense is probably just as good as 70% of the starting defensive units we'll see this year. And I also would say, if he looked that good against the second-team defense with the second-team O-line and the second-team skill players, what could he do and what kind of explosive plays could he make if he had the first-team O-line and the first-team skill players? So I think the kid really um, has kind of put the wheels in motion with Lane Kiffin and Nick Saban. You know, hey, if this continues and then he gets, you know, further along and, and further entrenched in the playbook and keeps this level of comfort and – you know, I only saw him probably force or maybe make two or three bad decisions Saturday. Um, and, again, he's getting all these accolades from two scrimmages and a spring game, and all you got to do is see him go through his progressions as a passer. You've yet to see what he can do with his legs, which is his best gift. William, but I'll tell you what, he's – Hey, Terry, can you repeat that? You broke up on me. Oh, sorry. I, I, I agree with you about the legs, but I still think the young man's got a pretty, pretty dang good arm. Oh, I think he's got a very good arm. And, and of all the quarterbacks on, on campus right now, you know, the one intangible that I look for in a quarterback, and I think it's the one thing that, A, you can't coach and develop. It's something that you, you, you just have once you get to this level and that's having a quick release and throwing an accurate ball. Um, and he's already got that. So, no, I, I totally agree with you. I was, what I, the point I was trying to make is he, he, he passed the test with flying colors at the most difficult part of playing quarterback at this level, and that's, you know, reading a defense. You saw him numerous times Saturday, you know, throw to the check down wide receiver or throw it to the tight end or dump it off to the back versus – you know, trying to throw a 40-yard bomb into triple coverage like you saw Cornwell do over and over again. So I just think once he can put that total package out there on the field, 
you know, like you alluded to, uh, it, it makes for a very intriguing uh, fall camp, and I'm really looking forward to see him take that next step. And you never know. I mean, Coach Saban has proven to be very willing to play true freshmen at every other position on the field, you know, left tackle, running back, cornerback, linebacker, uh, Deron Payne at defensive tackle last fall. Um, you know, maybe this is the year that maybe it finally happens at the quarterback position. Yeah, and, and I'm with you. I'm, I'm not saying he's going to start, uh, at least not the USC game. I think Cooper Bateman starts the USC game. But what I'm saying is I, I, the idea of some type of package, even if it's just one series a half, of him getting out there and, 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 and not – I mean, yeah, a lot of read option, William, yes, but – I just don't rule it out after what I saw Saturday and what I saw three weeks ago. I don't rule out the young man throwing a pass every now and then in the game. No, no, and that's that's really, you know, because I think he's much more advanced as a quarterback right now than, than Blake Sims was coming out of spring practice his senior year. And, you know, what I would like to see, and I'm sure Lane Kiffin's over there foaming at the mouth and his mind spinning around uh, thinking about this, but – you know, you, you get into a situation where you run the zone read, uh, maybe one or two plays, and then you have him roll out and, uh, you know, then do what's called a check with me play. Um, you know, you let him roll out on the naked bootleg, you know, drag the running back or the tight end out there in front of him as a dump off. And if the deep ball's not there, um, you know, you, you've got the check down guy. And if, if the linebacker or the safety doesn't come up to play that, that check down guy, you, know, you tell him to take off, and that's a twenty. That's a twenty-yard gimme pickup every time he does it. Yeah, and you alluded to the fact that uh, in the start that Bateman got last year, he left I don't know seventy or eighty yards out there on the field on three read options where he handed off instead of keeping. Let's say Jalen Hurts keeps the ball on just one or two plays a game like that. I, I mean, you talk about flipping the field. I I just think it has the potential to be dynamic. And there's a lot of people on the various Bama websites, the Keyboard Cowboys, that, that want to point out to us that, oh, well, Nick Saban, he don't play uh, uh, true freshman quarterbacks. He just don't do it. But, you know, I heard Nick Saban say at a, at a private meeting, at a booster meeting one time, and I'll paraphrase this because we're on somewhat of a family show. But he said, and he wasn't talking about quarterbacks, in fairness, he was talking about players in general. He said, I'm, I'm trying to win football games. And sometimes you have a better chance to win by playing a raw freshman than a uh, parentheses crappy senior. And, I, and and this could be – I'm not saying that, that, that Bateman's a crappy player. He's, he's a serviceable quarterback. I, I thought the best pass Bateman through Saturday was dropped by Calvin Ridley. And waited too late to get rid of the ball. It was intercepted by Ronnie Harrison. I'm not a quarterback expert by any means. And I do think Cooper Bateman will start the Southern Cal game. Don't what I'm saying. I just think fans need to be prepared for the possibility of Jalen Hurts not automatically assuming that Nick Saban will play. Well, I totally agree with you, Kerry. And I think, you know, long before the A-Day game, you know, Coach Saban has already kind of planted the seed. And I totally agree with you. You know, he's, He's not. This isn't Vestavia High School under Buddy Anderson in 1986. 
you know, that the the veteran guy doesn't get the job just because he's the veteran guy. You know, in, in most cases, the veteran guy gets the job because he's got the most experience and he makes the least amount of mistakes. He's been around the program longer than anybody else, and he's won the locker room over. But Coach Saban has already planted the seed, you know, two and a half weeks ago when he said, you know what, for a true freshman, he's done enough to put himself in the conversation with the quarterback race, and that speaks volumes to me. Exactly. And, you know, <laughs> I, I don't want uh, to berate your favorite player because I think he, he did all he could do. But you mentioned earlier uh, about uh, how your maybe your second favorite player got baptized under fire uh, by Ryan Anderson, somebody Tony Williams. But, uh, you know, I'll tell you somebody that got the Holy Ghost baptism was uh, one Bo Scarborough Saturday, Williams. Well, you know, the only thing, um, Kerry, that I really saw out of Bo that I was disappointed in, and probably more so because he's a 245-pound, you know, man, uh, was his lack of effort and, and willingness to stick his head in there and pass block, um, you know, and, and chip Tim Williams and some of those guys that were getting the best of the, the linemen up in front of him. But, you know, he, he's going up against the front seven. He wasn't getting a lot of help from the guys up front. Um, no doubt. I, you know, I, I didn't see a lot of places for Bo to go. Um, and if you flip over on the other side, that's why I've tried to tell people, you know, yeah, Damian Harris has made a bunch of improvement, um, probably the most with his body. He had confidence since last year. I mean, he ran with authority um, Saturday. But, you know, like going back to what we said, um, you know, that, that second-team offensive line that, that, that he was running behind had the luxury of not having Darren Payne up there with him, the center, and both guards' asses and, and defeating double and triple teams. You know, that's the main reason why Bo Scarborough had such a lackluster day is he just didn't have anywhere to go. And, uh, you know, that's more of a testament of, of uh, you know, what kind of player Deron Payne is. I mean, he did that last year. Uh, you know, I've, I've tried to tell people, everybody, you know, talks about, um, you know, the, the, the defensive line last year derailing Leonard Fournette's Heisman Trophy campaign. Well, there was another – uh, big-time award campaign that got derailed that night as well, and that was LSU center Ethan Posick, who was the leading candidate for the Remington Award before that game, and Deron Payne single-handedly derailed that one too. Great analysis there. Uh, and we're talking to former Alabama offensive uh, lineman William Redfish Barger, a great friend of BAMS Radio. He's pretty much our uh, – He's our ex-player analyst that we have for this show now. He's now a regular, and we appreciate him joining us. And he's joining us on the A's and Rim hotline. And uh, I want to remind everybody, the, and Paige mentioned this last time she was on, but I want to remind all of y'all, because the folks at A's and Rim want me to remind you this, that they have takeout Tuesdays and Thursdays going on right now. It's your chance to get $10 off takeout every Tuesday and Thursday between 4 and 7 p.m. And that's the Asian Rim over at the Colonnade Rush uh, Shopping Center. And you can call in that takeout order at 490, that's 205-490-1444, 205-490-1444. That's the takeout Tuesday and Thursday, 4 to 7 p.m. at the Asian Rim. Check out the menu at asianrim.com. Back to football conversation. Turning over now to the defense. Uh, you touched on uh, how wonderful the front seven looked, but specifically – uh, and Thomas and I talked about this last time. 
17 tackles by Rashawn Evans, who is new to the inside linebacker position. I do realize he got, as you have pointed out privately, that he got trucked once or twice by Dave Harris. I get that. But, William, these other 17 tackles he did make, they were not the Brooks Daniels 12 yards down the field dragging the guy down tackles. He, I think the guy came several miles to 8 You know, and I totally agree with you, Kerry, but there were two specific plays that I saw him do something that was a difference maker on that defense that has been one of the biggest Achilles heels for Nick Saban's defenses since he's been at Alabama. I'll pose the question to you. Not a dual-threat quarterback, but as far as defending a passing quarterback, what pass pattern is there every single time another team runs it against Alabama's defense? Oh, the uh, the tight end drag over the middle, never never covered. Well, you, you got it half right. Not just the tight end drag, any pass pattern that's run you know, 10 to 15 yards across the middle, you know, just crossing routes in general. And on two separate occasions, and, and the reason for that, even Reggie Ragland, um, you know, didn't have the, the lateral quickness or, or being able to drop into space quickness to pull this off. But on two separate occasions, Rashawn tipped one and probably dropped an interception on the other because he dropped so fast into that drop zone the quarterbacks were not anticipating that pass being able to be covered that quickly. And, you know, a, a bell went off in my mind when I saw him do it, you know, basically on the same drive. I was like, wow, that's something that's been there for the taking for opposing offenses for so long. And it's amazing when, when you get somebody a, a new, you know, I'm not, I'm not just plugging Jeremy, but this happens a lot of times. You can see, um, you know, the same type of, different philosophy take over with Brent Key meshing himself into the offensive line philosophy. But just that one single move of putting Rashawn there and not just saying, you know what, all this guy is is an edge rusher and that's all he can be. But, you know, putting him in there, you know, in nickel and dime situations and, you know, having him be an inside linebacker against the run, uh, running delayed blitzes. But what I really, aside from the 17 tackles, the, the, t- the biggest impact I saw out of him that he could possibly have on this defense this fall is taking away the, one of the – other than the dual-threat quarterback aspect, but taking away the most vulnerable aspect of Nick Saban's defense that I've noticed over the last nine years. Yeah. You know what? The great part that you just made – and, I look, you know, I go to the games a and I watch these people play. If there's even a chance they'll end up in Tuscaloosa, I try to go watch them. And I, I'm not a great talent scout, but, you know, it, it didn't take Einstein for me when I watched, God bless him, Sean Dion Hamilton struggling coverage at Crampton Bowl. Well, it's a hell of a lot harder at Bryant Denny when, when a bigger and faster and stronger right in is over the middle. It makes perfect sense that Sean Dion Hamilton is the wheel linebacker against the Arkansas of the world. But when you have a tight end on the other team that can be a receiving threat, I'm with you. I love having Rashawn Evans out there. And as good as Rashawn is rushing the quarterback, he'll have plenty of chances to do that. But, man, on first and second down, if they drag that tight end or run that fullback out in the flat, uh, it, it changed. You, you'll recall, William, you'll recall a play in Fayetteville, Arkansas, 
where a fullback dropped a touchdown pass in the first half, or there might not have been national championship number 15. True? No, absolutely. And, and I think that's a byproduct of, you know, three years ago, you know, Nick Saban making a conscious decision of realizing, you know what, you know, the game has changed. You know, we're, we're only playing, you know, two, maybe three teams a year, you know, like the LSUs and the Arkansas and the Georgias of the world that are still, you know, heavy-handed pro-style offenses. You know, the majority of the rest of the schedule are, you know, the Texas A&Ms and the, the Old Misses and the Tennessees. And, you know, they made a conscious decision. You know, if you look at Jonathan Allen and Deshaun Hand's body types, you know, they don't look like A. Sean Robinson and Jerry and Reed. They're long, they're lean, and they can move in space. And, and it's the same thing that happened, you know, with the linebacker evaluations and the linebacker recruitings. They're going for a different type, you know, of athlete. You know, even as good as Reggie Raglan was last year, and I'm not sitting here dinging a guy that's one of the best linebackers that has ever played at Alabama. But I thought Mel Kuyper, for once, got something right um, when he was talking about the, the draft prospects for this team versus next year's team. And you know, he even made the statement that he feels like Reuben Foster gets from point A to point B a lot faster than Reggie Ragland did. So that you're seeing the uh, the metamorphosis and the transition of Nick Saban saying, you know what, I can't have 250-pound thumpers at inside linebacker anymore. Um, you know, Reuben Foster's still a big-bodied guy, 240 pounds, but, you know, he's a 4'6 guy, whereas Reggie Ragland was a 4'7 guy. And you sit there and say, well, one-tenth of a second really isn't that big of a deal. When you're trying to cover running backs that run 4'4 and 4'5'40s in the passing game, it is a big deal. Me at all to see him 
sneak into the latter part of the first round. Um, you know, and the other one, you know, is Derrick Henry. Um, it, it would have shocked me to see him go late in the first round. Not at all. But with a lot with the running back position being devalued, um, you know, because of the short shelf life of the careers, um, they're just not as willing to spend that kind of money on a guy. And really, to be honest with you, once you get past the top 20 in the draft, the guaranteed amount of money that you get between being the 20th pick in the first round and the 34th or the 35th pick early in the second, you're only talking about a couple hundred thousand dollars in, in signing bonus money and, uh, you know, guaranteed contract money on your salary. So some people would say, well, you know, it's there's a big difference in going in the, you know, the first round versus the second. But when you start looking at the contract money, it's really not. You know, Mark Ingram, when he got drafted several years ago, um, you know, got a very nice contract. I think he got a – being the last player taken or one of the last players taken in the first round, he still got, I think, almost a $4 million signing bonus and I think uh, close to $8 million in guaranteed money over his first contract. So, you know, that, that's still a pretty good financial hit there. And as far as other guys that, that have a chance to get drafted uh, anywhere from the second to the seventh round, I, I think Cyrus Jones is one of those, but is he probably the only one that can count on it? Yeah, I think, you know, the next guy up, whether he goes in the second or the fourth, um, you know, is going to be Cyrus Jones. Um, he's a proven commodity despite his height limitation. Uh, I think certainly by his junior and senior year, he proved that he was a, a an elite cornerback. And when I say that, you know, just because he's not a top 15 pick doesn't mean he's an elite. He's proven himself as an elite quarterback at the college level. Um, you know, you saw what he could do as a return man. Um, and, you know, that that's a niche that he could fit in real well with whatever team decides to take him. Is, you know, you could get a guy in the late second, early third round, um, you know, that could play maybe nickel for you as a, as a rookie and, uh, you know, maybe factor in as your kickoff and punt return guy as well. There's a lot of value there. Much like with Ryan Kelly, you know, Cyrus Jones isn't just, you know, henpecked and plugged at one position. He can – would there be any chance at all of someone like a Dylan Lee, uh, someone like a Jake Coker getting drafted? I think after Cyrus Jones, um, Kerry, you know, the next guy that I think would go would probably be DJ Petway. Um, you know, Dylan Lee's a great athlete, but, you know, because of him playing that Sam linebacker position, there's just not a lot of a big body of work for, for those scouts and GMs to look and see what he can do. Um, you know, he did test out very well in the pro day. Um, you know, I maybe could see him go in, you know, fifth, sixth round area. Um, there again, from a money standpoint, um, you know, looking at it financially, really once you get past the fourth round, um, you know, the money situation from a signing bonus, you know, once those guys get past that fourth round, everybody's basically looking at a, a minimal signing bonus, and then they're going to get the league minimum of 550000 if they make the roster. Um, do I think Dylan Lee and Jake Coker could get drafted late? Absolutely. But I'd be surprised if after Cyrus Jones and P.J. Petway wasn't the next guy up somewhere maybe in the fourth or fifth round. And is the, the best guess on guys like 
Dominic Jackson or even Dizdale Duvall that they'll just be free agents? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think Dominic Jackson has a chance to really have a pretty decent pro career. He's not ever going to play right tackle again. He's going to be a an offensive guard, which was really the plan for him all along when they when he came to Alabama. Um, you know, before the unfortunate circumstances happened with Grant Hill last year, you know, they kind of had Grant Hill penciled in as being the right tackle, and Dominic was going to be the right guard. So, you know, he's never been a guy, even though he was signed out of junior college, I think it's kind of evident early on that um, as good as he was straight ahead at mauling people in the run game, you know, he struggled in space with speed rushers um, at right tackle. And that's just not something that you have to deal with when the space gets so confined down there inside. You know, speed rushers, when that space gets tightened up, that really – uh, minimizes the amount of space that they have to work with with moves, and you know you're not going to win a lot of um, you know one-on-one pass rushing battles if all you try and do is speed rush the, the right shoulder of a right guard. So I think he has a chance to make a roster as an offensive guard. Um, Duvall, um, I could see him making a roster. I mean, he's a guy that does very well against the run. Uh, he's not a uh, Tim Williams or a Ryan Anderson that does very well in space. He's not a dynamic pass rusher. He's not a quick twitch guy. Um, you know, the best bet for him, in my opinion, would be to try and get his weight up, you know, around 275 and become a full-time defensive end. That's a great point. Well, getting back to Alabama's defense and, and what happened uh, throughout the course of the spring, we, we talked about the great A-Day and scrimmages and all that, that Tim Williams and, and Ryan Anderson had at, at the two outside linebacker positions. But two other guys who got praised by the head coach were their backups. And I'm talking about Anthony Jennings and Christian Miller. Uh, both of those guys, now I know it's A-Day and it's two-hand touch, but both those guys were credited with three sacks apiece and uh, seemed to have a, a pretty good spring in both cases. Well, you know, in Miller's case, he, the the pass rushing part of it, he's been getting praised for for two years now. Um, and you're talking a guy that's, you know, somewhere between 6'4 and 6'5, um, got extremely long arms. You know, just from looking at him, I'm not trying to say he's that good of a player, but, you know, just looking at him from a body standpoint, he's always reminded me of the, the All-American from Florida, you know, 15 years ago, Javon Curse. Um, just ridiculously long arms. He, he excels at combating the ball down when the quarterback goes to throw if he hasn't gotten close enough to him to sack him. So what, the only thing that's been holding Christian Miller back for the last two years is adding some legitimate size to that lanky frame. He's finally gotten up to the 235-pound range and can survive out there if it is a run play. But he is – you know, kind of at the same stage this year that Tim Williams was at last year, I still think he's a, a pass rush specialist at this stage. Um, and Anthony Jennings, you know, he's a guy that, you know, earned his scholarship two years ago at that Alabama summer camp as a pass rusher. Nobody could pass block him. He's He's gotten his weight up to the 270-pound range. You know, he's flirting now, with uh, which is great in my opinion, um, I hope he eats a couple more biscuits this summer and, and segues away from, you know, being a part-time jack linebacker to a full-time defensive end. And uh, But I do think those guys, like you said, Kerry, are the kind of the next guys up, so to speak. 
Um, you know, maybe a Terrell Hall comes in this summer and, you know, surpasses one of them. I don't know, but he does have the, he does have more explosion and quick twitch ability um, than those two do. Um, and he's probably going to be, you know, in the 260 range, 265 range by the time fall camp starts. So those guys, those three guys right there, in my mind, are the next three guys that you're going to see as the, the pass rush specialist for Alabama going forward. Moving to the secondary, uh, and we'll start off with, with personnel. Uh, what would you say the odds are that, that Tony Brown will play the season, and if he does, at, at what point? Well, he, he's not going to play the first part of the season, um, you know, unless Alabama wins their appeal for his failed drug test. Um, you know, Tony failed an NCAA drug test, not for performance-enhancing drugs, but for street drugs. And, you know, per the NCAA's rules and regulations, your first defense for that is you have to sit out 50% of the competition on the schedule. So if Alabama plays a 12-game schedule this year, if they don't win the appeal, Tony Brown's going to have to sit out the first six games. So that being said, they really can't game plan and count on him as being part of the team, um, you know, during the fall camp. I mean, you put him over there with the twos and, you know, you rep him and get him ready and you practice him every week, but you just can't game plan with it, uh, which I think is unfortunate because he is a, a very, very talented young man. Um, you know, you saw Jeremy getting a little creative and nasty with him, bringing him on some delayed, you know, blitzes Saturday. Um, so, you know, I, I just wish Tony could take that next step with his emotional maturity and, and become a full-time member of the program. I don't think he's been a full-time member you know, the whole time he's been here. Um, but, what, you know, I see where you're going with this. I, you know, and I, and I do feel like this is still a possibility, I think, in the back of their minds that they would love to move Minka back to nickel and have either Tony Brown or Anthony Averett or even a Kendall Sheffield um, maybe take that other corner spot opposite of Marlin. Uh, I think Anthony Averett was the guy at the end of spring practice that was the closest to making that happen even though they're still not totally comfortable at this stage of inserting him there as the starter. Um, and that's a great luxury to have. I mean, you know, let's just say that program and didn't have the flexibility to play just about every position in the secondary. Um, and this would be a point of concern versus us talking about multiple guys that can play these positions. But I think, you know, once you get a full Eddie Jackson back, you know, totally healthy, um, you know, you got Ronnie Harrison back there with him. Um, in base, you know, Ronnie's really after a great freshman year. You saw the interception that he had Saturday, um, you know, played very well. Um, so, that, that you know, to me, the three deepest parts of, of this team coming out of spring practice is defensive back, wide receiver, and offensive line. Excellent analysis, always, William. Uh, we want to thank you for time to uh, join us here on BAMS Radio. You always bring it, and tonight was no exception. Uh, we really appreciate it, and uh, have a good night, my friend. All right, guys. I enjoyed it. Talk to you soon. All right. That's William Redfish Barger, the uh, former offensive lineman and current. Uh, he's kind of a uh, here on radio. Before we close, we just have a couple minutes left. I want to give a BAMS radio shout-out to the Algemeen, which finished third at Super 6. Uh, Auburn did not advance to the Super 6, but Alabama and several other SEC teams did. 
The Tide got what amounts to the bronze medal. So that's another good year uh, by Dana Duckworth. So shout out to those ladies. And also, uh, we want to tell you, we don't know a whole lot about what's going on with Alabama men's basketball recruiting. A signing period started uh, on Wednesday of last week, but there have been no signatures or commitments yet. Uh, what we have heard is, and this is not regarding this signing period, this part is not, but uh, John Petty, the best player in the state of Alabama for 2017, is considered a Kentucky lean, but Avery Johnson had an in-home with him earlier this week, and it went very well. Uh, Coach, K, Coach Cal from Kentucky had one the next day that went well, too, but Bama is closer than anyone would think to Kentucky in this, than, than people know. Uh, another name to watch as a possible graduate transfer is uh, K or Q Johnson from Washington State, a good three-point shooter. He's considering Alabama. Uh, and then Khalif Young, a high school player, 6'9", 235 player from Ontario, Canada, is trying to schedule a visit. He was going to try to come yesterday, did not make it, but uh, he is going to try to visit Alabama sometime in the next couple of weeks. This signing period ends uh, around the middle of May, so there's still time. But uh, that's going to do it for this edition of BAMS Radio. We do want to thank everyone for joining us. We thank William Redfish Barger, Colin Big C. McGuire, and we thank uh, the folks up at uh, ESPN 977 The Zone for sharing the John Garcia and Chris Lowe interviews. But that's going to do it uh, for Thomas Watts, our executive producer of Touchdown Alabama Mag, for myself, Kerry Clark of BamaMag.com. Thanks for listening to BAMS Radio. Good night, and roll tide, everybody. Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.